John 7, uh, there in front of you, verses 10 through 13 to begin with at least. So this morning we were in John's Gospel, we looked at verses 37 through uh, 39, Jesus' great invitation for all to come and to drink if they are thirsty. Well this evening we're going to pick things up, not from where we left off this morning, but where we left off last week. So last week we were eavesdropping onto the conversation that Jesus had with his brothers in verses 1 through 9. And that took place in Galilee. Well, as we pick things up in John 7 verse 10 and work our way through verse 52, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. And Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And Jesus is going to be opposed, misunderstood. And as we work our way through this chapter, the opposition mounts. The misunderstanding deepens. But all of it begs the question, who is Jesus? And what do you make of him? What do you believe about him? Now, the plan is is to look at verses 10 through 36 under the heading, Jesus opposed at the temple. And then verses 40 through 52, Jesus opposed by the religious leaders. But John sets the scene for us just in, in verses 10 through 13. After this, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but privately. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The impression we get in in, in these opening verses is that Jesus was the talk of the town. Everyone's, all the pilgrims are gathered in Jerusalem. They're here to celebrate this great festival, but everybody is talking about him. Now, the, the reference to the Jews there in verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. That's the Jewish leadership. They're there and they're wondering, when's Jesus going to show up? Where, where is he? If you've got an NIV, it's, where is this man? They're searching for him because they want to kill him. We were told that back in John chapter 7 verse 1 and John chapter 5 verses 18 and 19. 18 and 19. The Jewish leadership wanted Jesus dead. But notice it wasn't just the Jewish leadership who were interested in his whereabouts. Even among the crowds of pilgrims, there was a great deal of interest. And we see that there was this muttering about him among the people. Now, see that word muttering, it's a theologically loaded term. They were grumbling. We've heard that before. They were just like their forefathers. They were complaining about Jesus. And do you know why they were complaining? Because they wanted to make him king. They wanted him to be Messiah. They wanted him to meet their needs and do whatever they asked of him. They wanted him to fulfill all of their wishes. But the problem was Jesus not playing ball. Every time they tried to get seize him, he seemed to escape from them. And just so you don't get the impression that everyone's conspiring against Jesus, there clearly were some people who said of Jesus, he's a good man. 
Now, in some ways, that's the understatement of the year. Some of these people had witnessed Jesus heal a lame man who sat by a pool for 38 years. Some of these people were recipients of the miracle of the feeding of the multitude on the mountainside. And here's the testimony. He's a good man. And yet there were still others in the crowd and they said, no, 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 no. He's not a good man. He's leading people astray. In fact, it does feel like the overwhelming majority of the people in Jerusalem for that feast, they misunderstood Jesus and they were indeed opposed to Jesus. Now the fact that Jesus divided opinion does not, should not surprise us. As I look around the church tonight, I suspect that for many here in the church tonight, you happily, unashamedly, would say that Jesus is the Son of God. This morning, we had new members and they stood up and they publicly professed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wouldn't surprise me if there are some in this church, you don't buy that claim. You're not convinced that he is the Son of God. And, and, and even if there's, even if those who don't believe are in the minority in this church, let me tell you that outside of this church, there are many people with differing opinions regarding Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that there can only be one of two opinions. Jesus is either a deceiver, who's led people astray, and those of you who profess faith in him, you've been deceived. You've fallen for the greatest hoax in history. Or, He is good. He is God. He is Savior and Lord. And those of you who reject him and do not understand him, you will give an account to him. But let's read on. That's John setting the scene for us. Just notice in verse 13 that even though Jesus was the talk of the town, people weren't talking about it openly because of fear of the Jews. It's a really strange atmosphere at this Feast of the Booths. Everybody's whispering. Everybody's talking. But not openly. Not publicly. Well, as we come to verses 14 to 18, here we learn one of the main reasons why the Jewish leaders objected to Jesus. He was not educated. At least he was not educated at one of their seminaries. He had not sat at one of the feet of their rabbis. Look, look at what we read in verse 14 and 15. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? And just before we look at verse 15, I, I love this, right? Jesus is the talk of the town. The feast is well underway. And, and, and John tells us in verse 14, Jesus was fashionably late to the feast. The impression is that Jesus only came up to this feast. His brothers left Galilee and he came up sometime after. He probably came up midway in the feast. Because Jesus did not come to attend this feast. Jesus came to fulfill this feast. He wasn't, he wasn't one who erected a, a tent. He wasn't one who had come take part in the ceremonies. He was the one who came 
to say that all of the ceremonies found their fulfillment in him. And notice, in fact, we know that there's something different to Jesus because we read there that he came up and he went to the temple and he began teaching. And that's because Jesus had something special to say, something significant to say to everyone. Before we get to learn anything about the content of his teaching, in verse 15 we have the Jewish leaders challenging him and opposing him that he's never received any official teaching from the Jews. Interesting, isn't it, right? One of the things that when you, you study through John's gospel is loads of people love to make an opinion or assertions regarding Jesus. And they're often wrong. So, like, back in chapter 1, Nathaniel hears about Jesus and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, Jesus can't be good. And there's others who say, Jesus can't be who he is. We know his mother and his father and his brothers and his sisters. Just a quick question. Do you ever judge people on the basis of outward appearances? Do you ever judge people on the basis of where they studied? Or perhaps because they haven't studied? Do you ever judge people eh, on the basis of you think they've got a good family, they've got a good lineage? Or do you judge people who, who you think on the basis of the fact that they don't come from a good family? I think all of us can be Oh, guilty of judging people. It's really interesting. Last week when we were studying John chapter 7 verses 1 through 9, I said that at the end of it, Jesus' younger brother, one of them, James, you know, he, he became a significant leader in the church. And he, he wrote one of the letters in the New Testament. One of the really interesting themes that runs throughout the letter of James is James says we should never judge someone on the basis of outward appearances. We should never show favoritism or partiality. And you wonder where he got that from? He got that from his big brother. Now here's all these people and they're judging Jesus. The Jews, they marveled. How is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? Now, the question that they asked, it's actually a rhetorical question. The intent is to demean and challenge the authority of Jesus. See when it says that they marveled, not in the positive sense, this is in the negative sense. But what I love about Jesus in this passage, right, is all of his responses. They ask a rhetorical question to mock him and to challenge his authority. Jesus chooses, I'm going to respond to your question. And what he does is he reveals the source of his teaching, which actually carries with it an authority and validity that devastatingly trumps all of the authority of any ordained rabbi. Look at what he he says. My teaching is not my own. It is the teaching of the one who sent me. Jesus does not need to claim the authority of the Jews. He claims the authority of God. Who is the source of his authority? God. The one who sent him. These words have been said over and over again in John's gospel by Jesus. He was here on the mission of God the Father. And what Jesus is saying in essence when he says this statement is he's saying, I am the greater than Moses. I am the prophet that's come in the the, the form of Moses, the one who's prophesied about 
In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 to 20, I am the prophet like Moses almost to let, almost to the letter. Jesus wasn't just this self-taught religious genius. He was nothing less than the Son of God sent to be the prophet of God to reveal God and speak God's words to the people. Now, just so we can enter into this moment, the look in the faces of the religious leaders would be one of shock and horror. Claiming to be of God That's blasphemy, worthy of death. But does Jesus hold back? We'll look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no Falsehood. Jesus presses things even further. And he undercuts the, the, the foundation of the rhetorical question of the Jews. They challenge Jesus' ability to teach. Jesus now challenges their ability to hear. Here's how you know. Here's how you know if someone is a true teacher of God. They'll do the will of God. And John's gospel to do the will of God is to believe in the Son of God. (laughs) Problem with these Jewish leaders, they won't do that. But Jesus presses it even further. You want to know if if you're a true teacher, you will not seek glory for yourself, you'll only seek glory for God. So Jesus says, like, go survey, go analyze all of my ministry. Is it been about him? Nope. It's been about the glory of the one who sent him. On the other hand, the Jewish leaders, what's all this fuss been about? God or them? We can make your mind up as we walk through this passage. Now, just, just as I say, can I say something that's helpful for belonging to any church if you, if you don't stay in this church? Here's your criteria to tr- judge a church. To judge a preacher in a church, does the teaching come from the Word of God? It is the source of the teaching in the church from the Word of God, because that's what Jesus says. That's the criteria. He's from God. He preaches the Word of God. He reveals the Word of God, because he is the Word of God. And secondly, does the church, does the preacher give all glory to God, or is it glory for self? So the Jews opposed Jesus on his credentials. But the second reason they objected to Jesus, it's actually for something that had happened in the past. He'd, he'd broken the Sabbath. And the really strange thing happens is, is the Jewish leaders are opposing Jesus. The crowds join in in their opposition of Jesus. Now, this is a really fascinating moment, right? Look at verse 19. Second objection to Jesus. In verse 19, Jesus begins with a question. Has not Moses given you the law? And if all the Jewish leaders were standing there, they would all nod their heads. Absolutely. Yeah. We are the chosen people. We were given the law at Sinai. So Jesus says, okay, you think you're special because God has given you the law. Let's just see how sound your judgments are on the basis of the law. That's what's Jesus' interest, right? 
So then he says, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? These guys rejoice in the fact that they've got the law. Jesus says, your biggest problem is you don't keep the law. How does he know that? He knows that they want to kill him. It was said at the start of this chapter. It was said back in chapter 5. They were intent on killing Jesus. He exposes, in this instance, their blatant hypocrisy. Now, this is the strangest moment. Look at what happens next. Verse 20. Verse 20. The crowd answered. So the crowd are listening on to this little uh, dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And the crowd answered, You have a demon! Who's seeking to kill you? Now, 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 let's not be too hard on the crowd, right? They trust these men. These Jewish leaders, they're men of God. Surely not. They're, there's no way these men, they keep the law, they keep the Sabbath, they care for the poor. These men. Jesus, the only possible explanation for what you've just said about these men is you have a demon. You're out of your mind. To say that these men would be trying to kill you. Now, this is preparing us for where John is headed. Soon, the Jewish leaders with the crowd and the Romans will all work together to put Jesus to death. Some of this crowd will shout, crucify him, crucify him. Now, what I love is what Jesus does next. He responds to the crowd first of all, right? And he says to them, verse 21, Jesus answered them, the crowd, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Do you remember what work he did? Where they were all marveled? Back in John chapter 5, he healed a lame man at the pool of Siloam. And, and do you remember? They were all marveling. They were all like rejoicing at what Jesus had done. Now, now, this is brilliant. You were all marveling at it. I, I think there's a sense in which Jesus may even be asking a question. You were all marveling at it. And maybe he glanced over to the Jewish leaders. Did they marvel at Jesus when he healed the, the, the man? Nope. In fact, it's right there when Jesus healed the man, we read instantly that the Jewish leaders were furious and because he broke the Sabbath, they wanted to kill him. Jesus was not out of his mind. Jesus in this moment, he's exposing what was going on in the Jewish leaders. The crowd may have not known it, but Jesus did. And can I just say that, right? You might try and convince other people that you are someone you're not. You might try and give the impression to everybody that you're good, you're godly, which we all aspire to be, and we're all trying to work in the process of sanctification. But, but as Christians, right, let's never be deceived by one another in this sense. We all know that all of us don't live up to what we're called to. You know, sometimes in, in church circles, we can be so surprised when there's like a huge scandal. And, and in some sense, it's right to be surprised and shocked because people who, who know better. But at other times, we've got to understand because of sin, because we live in spiritual warfare, there are people who you can look at and think are great when actually underneath things aren't so great. And Jesus exposes that in this moment. Now, what I love what Jesus does next is, the guys opposed him on the basis of the Sabbath. They wanted him dead. 
because he broke the Sabbath in their minds. Jesus says, okay, you want to, you want to talk Sabbath? Let's talk Sabbath. <laughs> Let's talk about the law. He says, the Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, it's from the fathers, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, okay? If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Now, this is brilliant. He, he's, he's right here going to expose their, their complete and utter hypocrisy. Jesus heals a man and they oppose him and they say, you're a Sabbath breaker. Yet, in Jewish interpretation of the law, if a baby was born and then eight days later it happened to fall on a Sabbath, they said, well, Moses said, the father said, we have to circumcise, so let's circumcise. And in their interpretation, it's like, that's not Sabbath breaking. Because we're putting the sign of God on the, on the child of God. But, but the, the staggering thing is, when Jesus heals a man, their legalistic interpretation comes about and it says, no, you cannot heal a whole man and make him well on the Sabbath. Showing us that these men, they don't keep the law, they abuse the law. And, 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 and this might need to be said, some of us, right, who take the law of God so seriously, you, we need to be really carefully that we don't fall in the error of hypocrisy. It's when you miss the purpose of the law. Here's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he heals a man on the Sabbath. He, he actually does what circumcision pointed to, to. Circumcision pointed to the need for spiritual circumcision, circumcision of the heart. Jesus healed the whole man. Literally, he didn't just heal his body. He healed the man's soul. The purpose of the law is life. They could see that in the context of circumcision, but they couldn't see that in the context of healing. And so Jesus then says this statement in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. Because back to my question, do you ever judge people by appearances? Here's the thing you've got to understand is that sometimes we miss the point of the law. The point of the law, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and the point of the Sabbath is it's, it's for life. Be very careful if, if you condemn people. Jesus says, be spiritually discerning about your moral judgments. People who take the law seriously can sometimes fall very prey to the law in the sense that they abuse it instead of using it for its redemptive purposes. So Jesus is opposed by the Jewish leaders. He's challenged and misunderstood by the crowds. He now exposes them for, for, for the erroneous way of thinking and living, the Jewish leaders. Well, do you know what happens next? The Jew, people in Jerusalem, so that's not the pilgrims, just people living in Jerusalem, right? They're there, and look at what happens. We have the third objection. Now, I love this. The people of Jerusalem, right, the local residents, they hear all that's going on, and they just see complete hypocrisy and confusion everywhere. So, so, so verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Now, I love this, right? Always be careful 
My mum used to say that verse in Numbers, your sins will always find you out. You know, you can never hide your sin. You'll find you out. It's actually not the true interpretation of that verse. But the principle is true. You can think you're going to cover up your sin, you're going to hide your sin. Trust me, it will leak out. The Jewish leader's desire to kill Jesus was plain even for the residents of Jerusalem to see. And so, so they, they, they look at what's going on here and they say, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? Verse 26, and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They're totally shocked. Here's Jesus, he's standing speaking and and, and they know that these Jewish leaders want him dead, and yet they're doing nothing about it. And for just a moment, you might think to yourself, man, they're the good guys. But then the people of Jerusalem go on speaking, and they clearly misunderstood Jesus. They're not the good guys. They reject Jesus. Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So here we've got further op- objection to Jesus, and, and, and this is... So ironic. These people claim to know more about the Messiah than the true Messiah who's standing in their presence. They say, we know where this man comes from, but we also know that there's this saying that when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. And so they refuse to believe in him. I love how Jesus responds. Every time Jesus responds, he's so counterintuitive. Like, look at what he says, like, Kind of like he mocks him. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me? You know where I come from? Rhetorical question, meaning you don't know me, you don't know where I come from. You're profoundly ignorant of the true facts. Okay, you want to know where I come from? Look at verse 28 and 29. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him. He has sent me. Jesus says my origins is from God. You're confused not about you're confused about my identity. Your big problem is you don't know God because you don't know me. You know nothing about the Christ. So this is what we've seen, right? Opposition from the Jews, opposition from the crowds, opposition from the Jerusalemites. Misunderstanding, misunderstanding, and it's mounting and it's mounting and it's mounting. Look at verse thirty. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, there's a clash, not just of personalities here. There's a clash of wills. See, God's will is firm and fixed. And Jesus' moment to die had not come. Can I, can I say something just that Calvin draws out here? The day of your death is fixed. You won't die a moment after or a moment before. And God has planned and determined. The day of your death is fixed. Man is appointed to die once and then after that, face judgment. And Calvin here says, here you see, they want to arrest him. They want to kill him. But it's not his time. God had planned and purposed the time for Christ. And God would not let his son be taken a moment before it. Or a moment after it. Now just when you think things are a really bad moment, they're trying to kill him now. Verse 31, yet many people believed in him. Yes! Finally, people, as they listen on, as they watch on, for whatever reason, they see him, they hear him, and they think, 
He's a Christ. Trust in him. Now, now just as we move through this very quickly, because time is running out, it, it is suggested to us in verses 32 through 36 that there is more opposition from the Pharisees. They want him dead. They want to arrest him. But they don't understand anything Jesus says. He says, I'm going to be going away soon. You're not going to find me. And they can't get their heads around that. And it's in that moment Jesus slips away from them. And the next time we pick it up is in verse 37, where Jesus gives this great offering on the great and the last day of the feast. We looked at that this morning, so we won't look at that this evening. But as we draw this to a close, we now get the opposition of the religious leaders at the end. And this is the bit that we'll conclude with. In verses 40 to 52, Jesus is opposed by the religious leaders. So look at verse 40 with me. When they heard these words, some of the people, that's what Jesus just said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. When they heard the word of these, these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem, the village of where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Just see, complete confusion, complete misunderstanding. This time they're right. The Christ will come from Bethlehem. He will be from the line of David. But people aren't so sure. So as all of this confusion is going on, we read some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, this is the bit that's fascinating. Second time that people have tried to arrest him and kill him, and they can't. Because as I said, God's timing is perfect. Jesus was appointed to die for our sins, to take the judgment of God upon himself for his soul. They can't kill him. And so they ask the men, why did you not bring him to us? And I love this. These religious leaders who so desperately oppose Jesus, they're answered by their officers and they say, no one ever spoke like this man. In other words, we heard him say, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And we've never heard anything like that. This man gave me and the other officers an invitation and we believe. Now, the fury here of the Pharisees and the chief priests is evident for all to see. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? And ironic, they're the deceived ones. And look at what they do, right? They say, have any of the authorities, any of the Pharisees believed in him? Meaning, none of us are ever going to believe in him. This man's a deceiver. And then they say of the crowd, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They issue their hypocrisy. Nobody understands the law. None of you understand the law. You should be listening to us. We're the teachers. And this is where it goes. Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was one of them, had gone to Jesus before, said, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? One of their own turns around to them and says, guys, you don't know the law. The law says, Deuteronomy says, we cannot judge a person without hearing them first. You see it? 
These leaders are so deceived. They're blatant hypocrites. These men will stand accursed. Those who teach will face stricter judgment. These men are breaking the law left, right, and center. But this is the beautiful thing. One of their own, who they said, if any of the Pharisees, of any of the religious leaders, if any of them believed in him, answer, guys, you're wrong. It seems Nicodemus, his heart is softened to Jesus. And he's coming round. And he sees Jesus for who he is. But I want you to see that the majority of people, they oppose Jesus. They misunderstood Jesus. But here's one of them, at least. And he believes Jesus, as do their officers. Brothers and sisters, the question of this passage is, what will you do with the evidence? What will you do with Jesus? And and just before we, we leave this, Jesus knows you. He knows your heart. He knows exactly what you think about him. And he's asking you the question, what will you do with me? The will of God is to believe in him and receive life in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we've listened on as you interacted at that Feast of the Booths there in the first century. We've watched your responses to the people, to the Jewish leaders, to the crowds. Every time you were misunderstood and opposed, you responded perfectly, wonderfully, gloriously, brilliantly. You cleared up the misunderstanding, but the people still didn't understand, many of the people still didn't understand. You exposed the hypocrisy, and yet many people were still blind to their own sin. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would search and examine all of our hearts here. You know us and you understand us, and you know exactly what we are doing with you, how we are responding to you. We pray that following even what we heard this morning as we listened on to your great and your glorious invitation to come to you if we're thirsty and, and drink, we pray that even this evening we would be like your, those officers who went home and said, no one speaks like this man. We would go from here in total astonishment and awe and wonder that there is truly none like you. We pray too that as your people we would we would learn how to use the law and apply the law and live out the law. Your ways are the best ways. And yet even we can make a total and utter mess of the law. And we pray, O oh God, that you would keep us from judging by appearances. Keep us from looking down on people, making assessments on people. When we don't know the facts, help us to live out your will to believe in you, to trust in you, to follow you, and to enjoy you. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.